and welcome to Film Inquiries, the latest. This is a podcast series tackling the latest movie news, movie trends, and movie releases. I'm your host, Jesse Nussman. And on the other line, wiping the elephant shit off him as he walks into the orgy, it's Josh Martin. <laughs> hello, hello. Thank you for for having me back on. For I feel like it's... Um, I was... Before we got on, I was joking with with Jesse about looking through our previous invites. It looks like I was last on here uh, earlier in the summer, so it's good good to be back. Good to I talk about. I believe yeah. it was the Michael Bay episode. So you, that's you've been right. On that's two right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredibly debaucherous, like filthy pieces of cinema two, episodes. Two of the most excessive uh, excessive films of the year. Yeah, you got it. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure my my opening uh, joke has already turned half the listeners off which which of the sort of various debaucherous grotesque things in babylon were you probably like most worried i was going to use as a joke to introduce you because even even in real time i was like i have about five or six in my there's there's a lot of options i will say as someone who is uh notoriously uh like i hate uh vomit of any kind and like hate vomit scenes in cinema (laughs) There's a moment in this that like freaked me out, but it was kind of funny in context. But no, I mean, I was thinking I, I rewatched the film because we got the screener for NCFCA consideration. I was watching it with my dad the other day. And uh, back when I was in high school and into college, I worked at an art house movie theater. And this is the kind of shit that we would we would play, although this is on a bigger scale than. Can, uh, can you imagine the the Ballantine the Regal this is super you, super specific you know where, for, yeah, any, you, and for any for, listeners, for any this North is like Carolina good, listeners yes good lord they're getting really off track but like can you imagine the Regal Ballantine crowd like, well that's so that's where I worked movie? so that's yeah. where I worked and I had so many stories over the years of I mean each year it seemed like there was I mean I'll never forget the woman who walked out of the souvenir the souvenir the joanna hogg film pretty and was pretty, like, pretty understated movie <laughs> pretty pretty tame and was like aghast she's like there was a there was a penis and we were like really like like that's like it wasn't like it was like a poor anyways um but i mean i remember walkouts for uncut gems of i can't believe all the language and i'm just like mm-hmm. you know whoever whatever has whoever has to work at oh let's go see the new margot robbie brad pitt movie and then within the first five minutes you've got uh, as jesse said uh elephant shit directly on the camera followed by uh a woman pissing on a, a large man while doing blow um it's a statement right <laughs> off the bat from our our good friend uh damien chazelle so uh no there there will be some interesting responses once the uh once the general public gets their hands on this movie and not just uh film people I mean, if the general public, I'm, I, I feel like the ba- the real Babylon reactions are gonna come like in mid February, like when it early hits Paramount March, Plus. Yeah. right? And, when it hits yeah. Paramount Plus, and then the mass, then yeah. that's when like the true masses are like, oh, I didn't yeah. see this because it, I went and saw Avatar instead. Let me fire it up now, and are immediately yeah. like, I'm sorry, what is this? My, my only hope for this movie box office wise, I was fascinated. So I should preface for uh, the listeners who don't 
don't know me, don't know my, uh, or, or don't follow me on Twitter, or whatever. Uh, I love this movie, and I'm kind of uh, moderately obsessed with Chazelle's work. So we'll get into that. You, but, you are the premier Damien Chazelle uh, auteurist. A- auteur, of, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, my only hope for this movie as a box office success is if oh a bunch of people go to the theater on Christmas, Avatar's sold out. Oh, well, let's just go see this instead. And then maybe it turns into a hit. It's a very sliver of a chance. I was yes. kind of shocked to see that Paramount um, signed Chazelle to uh, an exclusive first look deal. Because I'm just like, I don't know. But this is his go for broke epic. This is his put it all on the screen and see what happens. So Exactly. I think maybe Damien Chazelle is a good place to start with yep. this conversation. This is obviously, you know, his three-hour comedy epic about uh, Hollywood in the 20s and 30s and both the transition from silent cinema to uh, the talkies and, uh, you know, the introduction of sound, but also this transition from, uh, I'd say, like a uh, pre-code Hollywood to the more conservative sort of Hayes Code that would be present throughout the Golden Age. And um, another reason I wanted you on here as aside from your love for Damien Chazelle is you are someone who I think always brings a, a great depth of knowledge about Hollywood history and a, a good way to sort of contextualize some of this stuff for our listeners. Yeah. Um, but uh, as, as you said, this is kind of Chazelle's arguably like most ambitious uh, film to date. Um, mm-hmm. Damien Chazelle, the filmmaker behind whiplash and la la land and first man um i truthfully have not seen his first movie have you seen that yeah. one guy and madeline i've honestly like the more i've been writing about giselle recently the more i've realized that that and also that netflix series that he did a few years ago the eddie right. uh are the two sort of uh blind spots of mine where i'm like okay i need to sort of flesh these or see these two and sort of put them in the conversation i have not um so yeah now i have uh same same gaps as you yeah, but I think for for you know you're a little bit younger than me, but I think for people, uh, for cinema lovers of you and I's generation and kind mm-hmm. of you and I's age, I think Damien Chazelle has been one of those filmmakers that I think very early on, kind of, you know, we we all want to have that kind of experience or relationship to like. There's the stories of like Roger Ebert seeing Martin Scorsese's like yeah. very first feature at like a Chicago Film Festival and being like that guy that this guy's going places and being yeah. like i'm gonna evangelize for this guy and you know put praise him to the rafters is like this is one of the signature important filmmakers of his generation yeah. and i think you know us younger cinema lovers are constantly looking for like what's what's the experience we can have that's like that and i think for a lot of us chazelle was one of those people we kind of lommed on to early on as being like this, this is a guy who's got it he's got the yeah. goods um i you know my experience first seeing whiplash was alone in a theater actually no it was me and one woman who was sitting in like four rows behind me (laughs) and this poor woman got to see me at the ending of that movie as like the lights went up jump out of my seat and like fist bump in the air and be like we got one and having that kind of same experience of like all right i i am like fully invested in this guy you know he's clearly he's he's as i said he's got the goods yeah. i think if 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 he can make the right career choices and sort of not get too caught up in the machinery like 
this this guy could be one of the signature filmmakers of his generation. Yeah. And and obviously then, you know, that leads to La La it's 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 interesting sort of these four movies in context of his career because as i said whiplash it sort of feels like is kind of the mean streets for him it's the sort of launching point that people are like oh who's this guy and then la la land is the kind of box office hit kind of oscar crowd pleaser that you know a a movie a movie I, i i like um but you know i think we can all admit maybe got a bit overrated that oscar season and got the inevitable backlash and that you know that being the one that's like the the phenomenon that then gets the sort of like you know blown to a certain proportion that inevitably there's kind of a swing back against it sure Um, i i mean i'll i'll be i'll be uh, forthcoming to the fact that i little power though i may have had as a high schooler at the time (laughs) was definitely one of the people who was participating in the sort of building up of that film yes uh, as the kind of uh you know great movie of the year i think you know looking back on it i mean i still think it's a great film i also think uh you know it's and and you know He's a guy that's been cursed by his own success in some ways of, I think, you know, right. I think you're right in that, you know, if Whiplash, which comes out, wins some Oscars, gets nominated, he puts him on the map. But if, you know, if he goes straight from that to first man, I think he has a much different reputation in sort of critical circles than, I mean, there's people who just hate his stuff. Right. And I think, and, I think and Babylon they, has really unleashed that in a really yes. sort of potent way that it wasn't there before. Um, I it, think, you it, know, at it most... is ironically sort of similar to, you know, at, if you go back and read stuff about like, I don't know, young, younger filmmakers, whether they're like Peter Bogdanovich or whether it be Paul yeah. Thomas Anderson, these sort of yeah. like the, a narrative gets formed around a, unfortunately you know it it is typically a white male filmmaker of this sort of like young savant and inevitably cinephile cinephile sort of boy genius who gets and there is i think a sort of desire to uh to some of the there's been really great i think negative criticism against babylon and i think as uh um i just read i was working on writing my own it's not a piece about Babylon, but it's about a, it's a piece that involves Babylon. And I was writing that. And then after I sort of finished what I was doing, I read Adam Naiman's piece, which sort of is relatively ambivalent, I think, on the film. Um, I, I think I think when we get more into the, the details will be yeah. a bit of what I come down for. It, and I don't want to necessarily speak to speak for Naiman, who is a much more accomplished critic than I, yeah, than I no, am. No, I mean, it's but, a great... But but maybe coming down of, you know, I, I found a lot of the stuff that I really loved in the movie was similar to the, the positive stuff that he brought out of that yeah. piece, while also I think some of the more negative aspects of that piece sure. maybe speak to some of the stuff that I, I did not feel worked for me, though I... I like this movie i want to go on record yeah by saying um and i and i and so i think to kind of like then bridge to you know after la la land if that's the one that is sort of as i said the the box office and oscar yep. kind of crowd pleasing phenomenon first man it seems like is kind of the now the underrated gem of like the one that yep. no one went and saw and now there is sort of like a, a contingency of people that are like what why did america sleep on this like amazing movie that now just like people will catch on tv and be like 
Yo, you know what's really good? The Ryan Gosling, Neil Armstrong movie. Yeah. Saw that it, on HBO. Fantastic. <laughs> I think we all forget too. Like it got caught up in like the dumbest controversy of like the last several Oscar cycles where it was like conservatives had a shit fit because they were like, it doesn't show the flag planted on like, remember that? Like remember yeah, when that was I, the I remember thinking the weeks? issue of why it didn't do well had less to do with that just because I think so much of like you know conservative backlash yeah. about stuff like happens in their own sort of it's an echo chamber tank. yeah yeah it's and a it deeply ha- alienating movie beyond that i think well, you know and didn't yeah. it also come out like within the same sort of stretch of weeks as oh, like gosh, a right. star, is, star born, is born venom, venom. uh bohemian rhapsody and like the, one of the, the halloween movies or something yeah, like the first it was reboot. something like yep. that and so like all big hits that just sort of like people looking at sort of the 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 show times were just going, like i'll see that yeah yeah we're, we're just sort of like uh, i don't know the movie about the thing that i already know what happens is maybe yeah. like bottom on my tier of things to see bad um, times at the el royale got crushed during that too that was just like a oh just my, a glut, talk about a movie that doesn't really just exist a, just anymore. a glut <laughs> of movies that came out and just so many of them just vanished into the ether yeah, yeah. no 100%. But now we get Babylon, which I, I feel like is now, without to sort of crystal ball too much, is, is I think set to be kind of like the ambitious, quote-unquote, incredibly divisive mess movie that like people will either love or hate and like may in some ways be the movie of his that people are willing to talk about and argue about the most going forward for better or for worse if only because i think for years and years to come will be the movie of his that you know there'll be sort of people sniping at each other on film twitter about whether they're pro or anti this movie no i mean you don't get many films on film twitter generally speaking and this is where I was kind of going with the like Naaman's written great stuff. Other pieces of criticism, I think are a little more disingenuous of just like where you can sort of see through where I'm like, Oh, okay. You're also like 38 and you hate that he is bankroll is getting uh, anyways. Um, but no, I mean, you don't see very often movies on, or if you log on letterbox and you're looking at half star and five star reviews, I mean, that's not something we get a whole lot of these days. And so I think, you know, it is a conversation piece and it's kind of been, I mean, he's been working on this movie. Uh, he came and did a Q and a back when I was at USC and uh, he spoke about this a little bit. He's been working on this for like over a decade, but I think the project first emerged where like people knew about it in probably 2019 and this, the script is out there. So if you want to read an earlier version of the script, you can, and it's interesting, and I'll mention some things from that because I yeah, think it's interesting do. to see what he changed. I haven't read all of it, but I know enough about sort of where the directions went. Um, but, you know, I mean, ever since the words kind of got out, there's always been the sense that this was going to be this kind of controversial mm-hmm. piece, especially some of the stuff you referred to in the uh, the opening sequences of, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, the sort of early debauchery and like, is he going to get this? to an r rating is this releasable who the fuck is going to fund this i mean it's just like there's it's always kind of been this kind of uh mythical strange project of like oh okay so like somehow this guy despite the fact that first man didn't do very well despite the fact that most movies don't do well anymore he's somehow going to get paramount to give him 100 million for this i mean i think they're sweating it less now that top gun was this major hit but 
Uh, it's I mean, they, they've had a good year business-wise, like the Jackass Smile, movie made money. Yeah. Uh, Smile, the Scream movie was was yeah. them releasing that. So I'm, they can I, afford a they yes. can afford a nuclear level bomb if that's what this. Which I hope it doesn't, but you know, I would not be shocked. Yeah, I remember kind of. I I think when I first heard about it, or or just first heard like, oh, he's doing a movie set in kind of 1920s Hollywood with uh, Brad Pitt, and I believe Emma Stone was like the original uh casting choice yes. for the the margot robbie role which after yeah. having seen the movie i mean i i really like margot robbie in in the movie but like the minute she shows up on screen was just like oh i get it yeah i totally see why this was written for emma stone this is like right yeah. i mean um, two actresses who i think would would i don't know that the movie necessarily would have been better or worse but it was like immediately like oh i see why she was your your first choice I, yeah and this was back when so this is what i'll say the main thing about the script that changes from uh from the t- whatever iteration is online to now mm-hmm. um and it was really funny because at the q a they kept trying to get him to talk about like who was the who are your casting how did you come to reach this and it was really funny to watch them sort of skirt around the fact that emma stone was very sort of publicly cast first in this and then they right. kind of moved away from it but in the original 2019 version of the script, uh, the only character in the current version of the movie where it's a real figure and they use his name and he pops up on screen is Irving Thalberg, played by mm-hmm. Max Minghella. In the original version of the script, it was almost all real people. Mm-hmm. So um, like the Emma Stone slash Margot Robbie character was Clara Bow. Nellie okay. Leroy was not. So it was Clara Bow. Um, it was not Lady Feiju. It was Anime Wong. Um, you know, it was all these sort of real figures who they sort of mentioned as characters. Um, the cameo from a certain very famous director was actually Eric von Stroheim, not nameless German director. <laughs> so there's all this sort of stuff. And he eventually, I think, just sort of changed it and talked about mentioning, um, you know, that that the the Nellie Leroy character ended up becoming this hybrid, not just Clara Bow, but sort of taking influences from other sort of figures. But I can see, no, I mean... And I've actually, I've, so I've seen the movie a few times now and I've warmed to the Margot Robbie performance actually quite a bit. I think she's doing some really good work here and has some really great sort of understated moments in the midst of a character that's just kind of exhausting. Um, yeah, it is, it is a, it, you know, at the some of the quotes I've heard of him like talking about like keep telling her to go bigger 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 mm-hmm. like it is yeah. it is both like a very i think it's i agree with you i think it's a very good performance but i would not be surprised like it is a very in your face intentionally it's, it's, over it's the great, top it's grotesque at performance times. yeah no, absolutely i mean it's grading and it's a film that's that's grading at times i mean i remember um you know and some of his other work can be like that as well but i think i mean people who know chazelle solely as the la la land guy are. And I, Mike Ryan, if anybody, like, if we're, I'm just going to shout out different pieces about the film. Mike Ryan did a great interview with him where he kind of talks about like, yeah, I was thinking about like not wanting to be known as the La La Land guy. And like, mm-hmm. but people who know him solely from that film and it's kind of aesthetic. Yeah, this is a much more aggravating, you know, sort of uh, work in you know, very interesting ways. Yeah. And the Robbie sort of, performance is a part of that. Yeah, it's sort of, uh, I've seen a lot of people been be sort of, flagging it as kind of like it's like the anti la la land if la la land is this uh kind of extravagant stylish movie that's like oh the magic of la and you know to to quote sean connery the movies and like you know you can come here and make your dreams come true and this is like hollywood and la is like a grotesque like evil like 
sickening yeah. place that is just going to like chew people up and spit them out. But then also, I think as we'll talk about later, also wants to tie in this idea of like out of that kind of debauchery and grotesqueness and just like this purely yeah. evil system that is just like destroying people comes incredible art and having yeah. to hold that kind of dichotomy in in the palm of your hand is i think sort of the interesting thing this movie is going for but yeah it it is like a total 180 into like a different view of yeah. los angeles and of the idea yeah. of being a star and being in the movies i've always found so i i like both agree and disagree with the folks who are sort of like that it's very the sort of anti-la la land in part because i think both Yes, aesthetically, it's, uh, you know, sort of diametrically opposed, uh, you know, just the sort of use of the musical genre and it's kind of flights of fancy. Um, it's kind of about the same thing, though. All of Chazelle's movies are about fundamentally the same thing. And that's where I think, like, even for me, La La Land has, um, you know, for a movie that I think so many people associate with this kind of bright, cheery, sort of optimistic, like you said, magic of the movies disposition, um, you know, I think it ends with one of the sort of more, uh, you could use melancholy or you could just full on just say that it's really depressing, like where yeah. that movie ends up. Um, so I've always found that the, the kind of tension between what, uh, you know, Chazelle is sort of doing there with where it goes to be sort of fascinating. Um, I just think Babylon, like you say, is much less, you know, there is never, you know, I've, the amount of people who came out of that and said, you know, oh, he made another love letter to movies. I'm like, did we watch the same right. movie? Like, I mean, I think it's another film that's, and I, you know, this is the piece that I'm working on. So I'll, I'll inflect a little bit of, of that. I think along with, you know, some of the other best films of the year, I think it has a very uh, ambivalent relationship to loving movies, to cinephilia, but to what you said, there's something about the uncontrollable sort of draw of the image and the images that movies and Hollywood and this sort of, uh, merciless system of production the images that they make still have this sort of you know um, i'm blanking on the word but this sort of appeal um, and that's mm. where i think the sort of potency of what chazelle's sort of pet themes accomplishes in some ways yeah it is kind of part of a, an interesting sort of collection of uh films or sort of film-like projects this year you know coupled with the the fablemans and yep. um empire of light which i would say is the least successful of these and you know uh me saying film like because irma vet, uh, yep. irma vet probably the yep. best i think at kind of exploring yep. this idea of like what yep. <laughs> it being a kind of like pretentious like very like sight and sound kind of put the beret hat on question but like what is <laughs> cinema and, yeah. you know like what let's explore this idea of like what is so captivating to us um as people to just sort of as you said the images on screen while also holding the the kind of dichotomy of but who are the people that how what is the chaos that sort of that yeah. beauty and that wonder kind of comes and, out of and nope is the same thing the exact I mean, so that's the all, other one yeah it's nope is the other one and then even you know uh not to go too much into but i think i think all of the films of the year the good films at least have been kind of explicitly weighing sort of the question of like what does it mean to be invested in this art form what does it mean to be invested in an art form that's maybe dying what does it mean to sort of give everything up to sort of 
invest yourself in these ideas, whether you're talking about, you know, sort of metatextually Tom Cruise constantly sort of putting his life on the line as like the guy who's going to save movies or James Cameron sort of creating this sort of new vision of cinema of like, what does it mean? What does cinema mean when you spend 13 years in a pool making, right. you know, something that's, you know, barely Th- even 13 in years relation. and $5 billion of yes. a company's money to, yeah, to wade I mean, in a pool. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I mean, with, with Babylon, I think it's particularly fascinating because I think it sort of fits with obviously the sort of career trajectory that Chazelle has been sort of spinning for several years now of sort of constantly making, you know, less about, he's made one and a half movies now about what it means to sort of love and be invested in movies. But I think he's more, sort of generally interested in what does it mean to be sort of passionate about or to have this sort of quest for greatness in anything? Mm-hmm. And what does that say about the person who's involved and what do they give up? And what is it sort of, this is, I think, a more recent development, but like, what is that sort of endless pursuit papering over in some ways of like, what is the sort of absence that causes someone to sort of throw themselves into something that as the characters constantly say in Babylon uh, is bigger than themselves. Everybody's always talking about wanting to be part of something bigger than themselves, but that sort of pursuit, which you can stretch to Neil Armstrong, which you can stretch to the characters in La La Land and, uh, you know, the sort of jazz ambitions of Miles Teller's character in Whiplash. But at what sort of cost does that come? And in Babylon, it's a very sort of different, you know, not quite on, not even just the level of sort of interpersonal relationships but it's this kind of life and death sort of uh attachment to your own sort of artistic ambitions uh and it goes to some really bleak and odd places for sure yeah i i think that idea you know there's a great scene kind of later in the movie um with gene smart talking to brad pitt yeah Um, that's the scene of the movie that i i think sort of perfectly perfectly crystallizes this movie's themes and yep. you know i i i've i fundamentally disagree with like some of the people who have been like well that's this scene that's just sort of like oh the power of the you know it's the it's the power of the movies or something is like no well, it is yeah. but it's this kind of like very melancholy kind of um yeah not even melancholy but kind of like just brutally not, honest I mean, right like yeah not, almost kind of like nihilistic um view of like this is the reality that you have to face is like yes you have sort of signed signed the deal to the devil of like you you're going to get what you want you're going to live forever you're going to be part of something important but that basically means like you are not going to this thing that you have created is going to outlast you and it's going to be you are not important in the grand scheme of things to it but and your importance to it is sort of after your death it is it is you know you you are going to be part of something but you do not get to sort of necessarily reap the yeah or reap the benefits and you and you don't get to and you don't get to control what happens after you're sort of you're you're leaving a sort of frozen the word that gene smart's character uses is sort of ghost but you're leaving this sort of ghost in time and sort of relying on that to no i mean i think I think that's the scene of the movie. I think that's also the sort of scene of Chazelle's career so far is that it comes closest to sort of an artistic ethos summation as you're going to get from a filmmaker. Um, And no, I mean, and I think you're right in that it it is less, 
even if you know, even if it is a sort of magic of the movies, in the I find it in the same way that people said Fablemans was magic of the movies type shit, and it it was, but it wasn't. I mean, it, it's the same thing where it's like you are giving up something major of like mm-hmm. this thing that for for all the characters in Babylon, it's like it's the thing that sustains them is like this push towards you know greatness, this sort of uncontrollable high. There's a reason that all the excess sort of fits in. They're papering over. I think the other great scene in the movie is uh, Nellie and Manny in New York. And they both talk about this sort of profound loneliness that they both sort of feel. And I think that's the other theme in Chazelle's work that's really sort of emerged in recent years is the sort of obsession with loneliness. And, you know, it's a loneliness that extends all the way towards death, you know, without getting too sort of spoilery i don't know if we will at some point but you know there's a very sort of particular sort of death drive going on in uh this film with all these characters and you know i think there's even the question of you know the smart dialogue is kind of optimistic he said of like oh you'll be immortal and you'll kind of live forever but even then it's like you know at what it's like you have to die to become the ghost that's going to live forever. Yeah. It's 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 like I took that scene as less kind of a like, hey, cheer cheer up, Brad Pitt. You yeah. know this is this is the road ahead for you, and more of this kind of like very yeah. kind of like kind of sad, scary speech of just sort of like you have to be the sacrificial lamb to sort of get the yeah. thing that you you're you you're want. pursuing something intangible. Right. It's not something that like, no matter, you know, how all of the, the film sort of obsessions are these kind of abstract concepts of stardom and sort of the image and immortality. And even then it's like, you know, you can stretch that to, like I said, all the characters in the film of whether it's Ryan Gosling's character in Lolly and getting this kind of brick and mortar jazz club of like, this is my legacy. This is my place. Or Neil Armstrong getting that footprint on them, that, that sort of imprint of like, I was here, I did this thing. And in Babylon, it's obviously the sort of celluloid, which smarts character suggests, okay, that will live forever. But even then, I think the film questions that at some point of like, like we know as viewers of like, yes, the film reaches this point where we see all these immortal images and I'll kind of leave that vague, uh, you know, before, but I think there's a very clear connection between what smarts character says and where the film ends without getting too spoilery. Um, but you know, there's always this question of like, you know, we know how much celluloid has been lost to the sort of annals of time. We know how not every image is immortal. So it's, you know, once again, you're chasing something in this pursuit of legacy and this pursuit of immortality that there's no guarantee that you actually achieve, but you can sort of hope and you can feel. And that's where I think perhaps the magic of the movies part comes in is that I think everybody who has some investment in this art form believes that these images that we see will extend beyond my lifetime your lifetime every that there is something greater to it but we're kind of i think that's what the name and piece gets to is you know this kind of anxiety around the death of cinema this sort of hope for immortality is kind of a way of uh sort of grappling with that and i think that's uh you know but yeah that, that scene is uh really kind of gets to the heart of what the movie is about beyond the elephant shit beyond the vomit beyond the piss you know that's the heart yeah. of what he's kind of getting at here so i realize we kind of haven't you know we're getting in sort of an in in a vague overview of the the movie yeah. but I'll, I'll get i'll get into some more specifics in in case any listeners have have not uh seen it um you know i 
I feel like the movie this is closest to, and this is obviously like a reference that people have been sort of like overusing, but I think I it's already still, know. I already know where you're going. You, you already know. I mean, yeah. you used it when you saw it and were like texting me about it. I mean, yeah. it, but but it is nonetheless applicable, which is, um, you know, I think the movie this is closest to is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights. Um, I don't think it is. I mean, you might disagree, but I, I don't think it is as nearly as good as that movie, but very similar in this very, um, you know, a movie about kind of the film industry, even though in Boogie Nights, it is sort of an, an offset because it's dealing with pornography. Yeah. But, you know, the idea about a a period of change in an industry and the people who sort of ride a wave of success but aren't able to sort of adapt when that change comes in and their inevitable yeah. fall um it also has kind of the frenetic very coked out intense yeah. you know very masculine filmmaking that i think people associate with boogie nights with a lot of like elaborate tracking shots and whip pans and sort of very aggressive coked out editing yeah um you know that this movie i think has also been kind of loosely compared as like it's wolf of wall street by way of singing in the rain um mm-hmm. but you know eyes I, I wide think, shot i keep seeing eyes wide shut everywhere which beyond the fact that it opens with that an orgy, just seems like really people being it. like oh they both have an orgy sequence or something like like that but the singing in the rain thing is really fascinating to me though because this movie like i don't like you know i think it'd be interesting you know everybody in our circles and the sort of world of people who are who were seeing this movie first Mm-hmm. are going to be very intimately familiar with singing in the rain. We'll have seen it several times. I mean, I te- I teach classes at USC uh, and that is the opening film every semester of the intro to cinema there. So it's like, you know, it's part of a sort of Hollywood legend will be really interesting when people get their hands on this movie who zero, right. like have never seen this film. I'm not because... bringing that context into it because, because there are so many yeah. scenes where I think, he oh is, my gosh i mean there's he, so much stuff he's playing with sort of like with what that you know text. about yeah. that text um and sort of subverting yeah. it in certain ways and using it to sort of like be this this sort of like dark cloud over parts of the yeah. movie um and then he gets really explicit with it at a certain point but at a couple oh, certain yeah. points but yeah um you know it, but it's fascinating that it's like okay we're getting a hundred million dollar studio movie that is contingent on the viewer having some intertextual awareness of this very popular, you know, it's still in the, it was in the top 10 in sight and sound. It's one of the most right. famous movies ever, but you know, this movie from the fifties that like, you know, no, it's not like it's, you know, been playing in, you know, widely in theaters recently. But anyway, I just found that interesting when the, the number of times I caught stuff where I'm like, yeah, Oh, okay. That's just dialogue from singing in the rain that he's riffing on or, Oh, okay. This sequence is kind of replaying. Uh, and if you read the script, there's sort of direct references to, this shot we're representing this sequence and this kind of reconfiguration with his own sort of coked out milieu for the film. Yeah. And so kind of also similar to Boogie Nights, you you know, we have this kind of large kind of extended family of characters who all kind Mm. of are sort of wind up at sort of the same parties over and over again. Um, I would say kind of the three major ones there, obviously we mentioned Margot Robbie's character who is kind of the new hot starlet on the scene and we see her rise to fame and eventual fall as she isn't quite due to her her voice and kind of what audiences at the time of like the start of sound kind of wanted from uh their their yeah. actors to in terms of like how they speak but also kind of she fits into this idea of like a more conservative 
push towards Hollywood where yeah. she she becomes famous as this sort of uh very salacious the wild star- child right yeah. wild child starlet and then that image is maybe one that the studios want to kind of like push away once uh the Hayes code comes in then you have Brad Pitt playing uh, a fictional character who's kind of the highest paid biggest male movie star in Hollywood at the start of the film and I think has a much more uh kind of familiar arc of sort of like yeah. oh the guy who's like at the top is the the as I said the biggest star in Hollywood but is not going to be able to make this shift uh to sound and is going to see his star fall I mean it, it is yeah, the it's a fallen man kind of right, arc where it's right. yeah no 100%. Um, and then I would say kind of like our central kind of audience surrogate character is this Mexican immigrant played by a newcomer actor named Diego Calva, who I think has been in some stuff in Mexico, but this is kind of his first uh, big U S debut. Um, And is, as I said, he is sort of following him as he sort of rises up the studio system and kind of comes in contact with all these various characters. It's, it's not a role that is like, I think, given a whole lot of meat to chew on but i think requires someone who is able to sort of nonetheless be kind of like magnetic and kind of hold the screen and sort of hold his own against all of these much more uh kind of wild and crazy and kind of over the top performances and then you know a a couple other characters around the you know the the seams there's as you said kind of an anime wong stand in this queer asian actress and we see her sort of failing to uh adapt as hollywood sort of moves more conservative in its morals and then there's Mm -hmm. a black jazz singer who sort of finds that he might be able to sort of move up in the world uh from sort of playing in at clubs and parties but with the introduction of sound could be a movie star now but then that brings its own sort of racial politics into the scene of what he has to compromise potentially to be a star um you know i i would say maybe one of the kind of like criticisms i have against the movie which which isn't necessarily a sort of like dart towards damien chazelle but was maybe made me appreciate an aspect of boogie nights a little bit more is the the way that both of these movies have this large ensemble of characters some of which don't necessarily get a ton of screen time but in boogie nights i sort of feel like a lot of those more tertiary characters whether they're sort of like Philip Seymour Hoffman or William H. Macy, like they, they don't get a whole lot of screen time, but like they feel like fully realized people. And you're like, I, I get that character right away. While maybe I think yeah. as Babylon sort of moves into its third hour, which becomes much more of a tragedy, I think it became harder for me to sort of uh, have the quite the emotional reaction. I think Chazelle was wanting and sort of seeing yeah. a lot of these characters kind of meet their fate because I, I think as we'll kind of get into, I think when this movie is a comedy, it it is maybe like I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say it is like the best directed American comedy since The Wolf of Wall Street. Like it is it is a just like bravura comedy filmmaking from not just sort of like all of the uh, like muscular camera movements that I talked about earlier, but mm-hmm. just Chazelle just so perfectly understanding like how to deploy a gross out gag a sight gag there there's so much visual comedy in here like there's a scene i've been thinking of where like brad pitt and his producer are up on a hill and they leave diego calva to kind of like deal with a group of extras and so brad pitt and his producer are sort of walking up on set above this hill 
and the producer's like, are you sure he can handle it? And Brad Pitt's like, yeah, he's a total pro. And in the background, as they're saying that, you sort of see in this big wide shot, yeah. all the extras sort of chasing Diego Calva, like down in the valley and this that... sort of like roar and scream. And just like knowing yeah. precisely when to kind of like have that visual cue come in. There's another sequence, probably my favorite in the movie where, uh, Margot Robbie is on a a sound stage for the very first time. Yeah. And Chazelle getting so much comedy out of just like they're trying to get this one take of her and yeah. They keep having to do it over and over and over and over and over again because something goes wrong and knowing like it's not like the same thing going wrong every time and this yeah. it's not going wrong at the exact same time either but him knowing that that is just sort of a beautiful um work of like comedic editing and knowing yeah. like how to pace it out and have you think like all right they're gonna get it right this time and then knowing when something's gonna go wrong to have it be funny and unexpected um i i i just think like well, it, it's the it, it's the scene from singing in the rain where they're, they're recording sound for the first time with lena lamont but it's turned into this kind of like you said, comedic pressure cooker that's just right. like stuff on all sides colliding. And it's like, it's hot. They're sweating. You know, there's right. this guy that's like, uh, you know, in, yeah, it's it kind of goes nuts anyways. Yeah. Or, or the big party sequence that kind of opens the movie and like mm. there's people having conversations and then like, you know, all of a sudden like uh, someone will like shoot through a window or something in the background and yeah. him kind of knowing all these sort of like playful little visual things to throw in there and understanding a kind of um comedic absurdity you mentioned Naaman's review and um it was so interesting seeing him i obviously there's been a lot of people comparing this to like scorsese and paul thomas anderson but him sort of drawing a comparison to like no this is kind of like yeah will ferrell era adam Mm -hmm. mckay of just like chazelle is that good at just orchestrating these large surreal like chaotic set pieces in which just the most absurd things you can imagine are all happening at these various party sequences just like people having a conversation and you've got someone jumping on a pogo stick penis in the background i mean yeah it's it's, yeah and then like an elephant bursts through the room and Mm -hmm. then you you know knowing all of when to throw in all these kind of surreal crazy bits and jokes on top of jokes but not at least not for me feeling overwhelming but feeling like someone who has total control over that and maybe for me i think i got a little less into the movie when it sort of tries to sort of swing shift into a more kind of serious tragic tone and maybe that stuff because so much of it is so cartoonish and over the top and works so well as a kind of like manic comedy I think when it shifts to tragedy, it maybe doesn't quite work for me, but I still, as we kind of built up with our kind of opening conversation, admire a lot of the themes and ideas that Chazelle is working and trying to grapple with. Yeah. I mean, as the, as you, as you joked at the start, the kind of preeminent Chazelle auteurist of our sort of friend group, uh, that the stuff at the end works. I get what you mean though, about the, um, the sort of, way that the supporting characters and i don't think it's because they don't work i like all the arcs and i like Mm. the performances especially they do have a tendency to sort of drift in and out of the film um for sort of points in time where like okay we meet Sidney palmer who's giovanna depo's character um you know we meet him in the first scene 
he's kind of hovering in the background. We don't really know much about him. And then we kind of get this rapid transition of, oh, he's a movie star now. Yeah. So, so kind of not it, always hanging around. Like it just occurred to me that like a lot of only, the side characters yeah. in Boogie Nights, they're just sort of like always there, even if they're in the background yeah. and don't necessarily have something to it's do. It's a bit more split up here. Same with uh, Lady Faye, Ju, the sort of character, um, the anime Wong stand in played by Lee Jun Lee, who I think is amazing in the film. Yeah. And I think has a great sequence with Brad Pitt near the end. That's really stuck with me. Um, but yeah, I mean, kind of goes in and out and sort of has this sort of unceremonious exit at a certain point. Um, so yeah, no, I get that. I mean, I think the comedy stuff works really well. Um, for me, the tragedy stuff is where Chazelle gets to sort of get into his, um, theme thematic preoccupations, which is what really sort of interests me about his stuff. There are a couple times where personally, I wish he would have dialed down or sort of cut a little bit of the comedic bits. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking particularly, um, about, it's funny. It is. It's good. Um, the snake scene, which oh. you've seen sort of highlighted <laughs> in the trailer, it's hilarious at times. It's also where the movie pushes a little too far to me into this kind of broad farce. Yes. Um, uh, but it works. I mean, and even some of the stuff with, um, uh, you know, the, the Tobey Maguire stuff near the end kind of goes off. Not comedy, right, which... but kind of this other shift into which is as you said, a kind of direct corollary uh, uh, or sort of, um, I don't know if that's the right word I'm blanking, but a sort of direct comparison to Boogie Nights. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It is. Toby Maguire gets to be kind of the Alfred Molina, the Alfred Molina <laughs> part, um, which, which is another like, I mean, I both in that moment kind of like was, had the biggest smile on my face of just like, I'm glad that I really feel seen that Damien Chazelle also notices there's something like really scary about Tobey Maguire that I've always instinctively felt, but you know, people think I'm crazy for saying that. Oh, um, yeah. But no. also maybe like, you know, an, another again to like, I mean, Boogie Nights is one of my five favorite movies. So this is a bit of like a, you know, unfair comparison, but of like, even that scene maybe doesn't feel as like, I think part of the reason the, sort of drug house sequence works so well in boogie nights is it goes on for so long and yeah. like the longer it drags out the both like funnier and kind of scarier it becomes and was sort of a bit kind of like i don't know just sort of a little curiously surprised that the kind of like the toby Maguire bit for as much as it had kind of been hyped up i think by the time i saw this was like oh this is a smaller section of the movie than i kind of thought it was yeah. going to be even though like the minute he comes in, I was just like, Damien Chazelle, you you beautiful little bastard. You, I can't. <laughs> He's covering so much. great. Even in, and I will say, I think this is, for a three hour and 10 minute movie, I think this is paced as well as it can be. Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes I wouldn't have minded if it had been even longer because I think there's stuff that does get um, yeah. sort of short change i do think it's like once you realize what he's doing of like oh okay it's the alfred molina sequence or like once you sort of get the sense of okay this is going to go wrong it does sort of suck a little bit of the tension out of it of, mm -hmm. uh, of like oh okay i can kind of see where where this is going and it also is just like a level of you used the word i think earlier to describe the margot robbie performance which i think is apt and i think the whole film is operating in a sort of grotesque register and then it goes even more grotesque by the time you get right. to Toby. Um, you know, he's got, if you've seen the trailers, he's got these kind of sunken in eyes and yellow teeth. And he's this really kind of uh, disturbing, monstrous, but also like childlike figure. It's a sort of right. fascinating <laughs> um, sort of performance. Uh, but by the time you get to the blockhouse, which is this location that he takes them, it's a level of sort of grotesque uh, sort of monstrosity that's sort of so exaggerated that it kind of, 
evolves from being like this sort of tense, you know, when I remember the first time I saw Boogie Nights and I haven't seen that movie a ton of times, but I still remember seeing that sequence and just feeling it sort of spiral out of control. And you're just like, Oh shit. Whereas by the time you get to like level three of the blockhouse, you're just like, what the fuck is going on here? Right. Damien? <laughs> like it's, it, it turns How from big a sort is this of place. Good yeah, Lord. It turns to a sort of WTF showcase, which I think may be in a movie that I think is close to being a sort of masterwork from him. I hate to use that word, but I, I think it's a film that's really expanding in interesting ways, but that, that is a sort of tendency in the film that sort of show offy look at this shit. Isn't this crazy? That's just yes. kind of like, okay, all right, I get it. But um, you know, that is the point, but it also, you know, has a funny ending and uh, that sequence itself. And uh, Toby's very good in it. He, He's popular, man. I mean, if he wanted to be a movie star, he could. Because when he came on the scene at USC, big, big round of applause for Toby. I'm like, hey, kids love Toby, man. Uh, um, well, let's maybe kind of throw up a. Unless you got any more kind of like people in the cast you want to talk about or kind of big larger themes, I think let's for the sake of audiences. I don't feel like it's a that much of a spooler to talk about the ending. It's not like, you yeah. know, it's not like twist it's actually a jurassic park prequel or something like that <laughs> you know but um you know we'll throw up a kind of spoiler to talk about because i i think the e the early reactions i was hearing about this movie from people who even yes. loved it or hated it they were like the ending is one of the most like galaxy brain silly things i have yeah. ever seen and i just to give you an insight into the atlanta press screening that i went to like I was kind of like giggling in my seat because I was like, okay, this is, is kind of like me thinking, I don't think this works, but this definitely is as big and silly and yeah, kind of like kind of I, just my jaw on the floor of like, okay, he's really doing this. And this no, is kind it, of it, funny it that, takes... it, that it's happening, but yeah. hearing people around me, like actively grown. And then a friend of mine, when we walked out, like, the ending took it from like a movie he was kind of mildly annoyed by to him being like, I absolutely detested and hated that movie. Cause I can't believe I had to sit through like three hours to get to that as like the final moment of the movie. But yeah. so spo spoiler alert now spoilers from here. Yes, um, I did. I did. I did enjoy <laughs> texting people in the days after I saw it. I was like, I really didn't expect uh, to end up uh, seeing avatar at the end of uh, Babylon, wasn't that have, people were like, "What the f are you talking about?" And I was like, have you, "Have you seen David Sims' review on Letterbox, which is basically just like, I, was it I too enjoy Avatar, or something like that?" No, it was, it was something. But... Um, here I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you keep talking. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull it up because I want to. Yeah, do I guess I'll give the summary. <laughs> and the one other thing I'll say more generally, we've already thrown up the spoiler warning, but you know, Diego Calva, you were right. I don't think he has a ton to do here, but there are really interesting things that, at least for me, sort of emerge as the film was going on where he kind of has to morph his identity to sort of fit Hollywood sort of ideas and standards. A really interesting moment where he tells somebody at the Hearst party. And I think the Hearst connection is interesting here too, because mm -hmm. that was such a big part of Mank, which no one has thought about since you and I talked about it two years no, ago. I but, mean, other than me every now and then being like, yo, remember when, like a month, made, a month yeah. after uh the election and all that misinformation david fincher made a movie about basically fake news election, and the misinformation <laughs> and, and election yeah. disinformation but i think it's interesting that hearst ends up you know being a big part of it but uh, of this film very briefly but um there's a part of the party where they're like oh are you from mexico and manny has this lie where he's like no i'm from madrid so it's like this kind of construction right. of his, it's this it's this undercurrent running throughout 
anyways, we should give a, a sort of summary for folks interested who haven't seen the film who are just like, I got to hear what this ending is. Yeah. Um, so, so, so by the way, the David Sims review on Letterboxd was on one hand, Hollywood is a fetid pit of exploitation. On the other hand, yes. it gave us Avatar. <laughs> Which, you know, is, is you know, is there, there the you go. message that's, of the movie, kind that's of. That's the movie. Um, so anyways, the film, you know, after all the sort of madness at the, uh, uh, at the blockhouse with Toby, uh, Diego Calva's character Manny has to sort of get out of town. There's a, a sort of end to the Manny and Nelly arc. Okay, anyways, we cut to 1952, um, which if you know movies and you know stuff, you go, okay, maybe I know where he's going with this. I don't know if you did. I had read that in the script, so I was I, like, I didn't, but I, you know, I I figured it was going to. I I figured a movie house was going to factor in it at some yeah. point. So he he's in L.A., back in L.A. for the first time with his wife and his daughter, and he goes to, wanders around town and eventually goes into a movie theater, and they're playing, what do you know, Singing in the Rain, because um, that came out in 1952. It was, you know, not a big hit at the time, but, you know, enough that you know, I'm sure it would have been showing. So this kind of funny cosmic coincidence basically ends the film, that a movie about Manny's experiences in Hollywood is what he watches. And so he's watching the film, and he has this sort of really emotional reaction. Um, and in the original version of the script, and Giselle talked about this, and I was like, I didn't think that when people started telling me what the ending of this was, I was like, really? Right. Was not there. There was no, mm -hmm. it, it just ended with that pan over the audience, and then it goes back to Manny watching with Singing in the Rain in the background, and he's crying, and that was where it ended. And then eventually, at some point, Giselle basically made the decision, okay, and I think it was a good one. And I'll explain why my why I, why I like the ending in spite uh -huh. of how much other people hate it. Um he eventually decided, okay, I need this to be as high energy as the rest of the film. So it turns into this bonkers montage of the history of cinema intercut with images from the movie that we just fucking watched, <laughs> which is the ballsiest move of the year of just like, yes, my movie can go alongside Unchien Andalou and Les Vampires <laughs> and all these great movies. Uh, it's awesome. Um, and it turns into this montage, which sort of steadily decomposes in time until we're just getting colors and frames and the fin du cine or de cinema card from Godard's right. weekend and all this stuff. Uh, and then we end the movie, including Avatar as one of the films. Right. There, there's like a shot the of the Velociraptors from Jurassic Park in there. And the Matrix yes. and then Terminator <laughs> and then Avatar. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, yes. And we end with this sort of delirious montage uh you know that once again sort of reinforces the something bigger sort of idea of uh you know wanting to be part of something bigger wanting to be part of something larger and in this case that something is the history of of movies mm -hmm. it's yes. it is it is an undeniably corny ending i yes. think i maybe i want to see the movie Again, I know I have like the screener in my inbox, but I'm sort of like wanting to go see. It oh, it expired already. Don't worry. Okay, okay. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'll just go to my favorite like movie theater here in Atlanta, and I'll, I'll see it on the big screen and be be happy again. It does play um, better, but yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 I mean, I, I hear you on the ending. I don't think it quite works for me, but I sort of ad admire the 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 silliness of the ambition like you bringing up yeah. the matrix like it it reminds me of some of the stuff in like a wachowski's movie where i'm just like sure that yeah. is like a real like bong hit sort of <laughs> well for me sticker it's, kind it, of yeah. kind of silly thing but i sort of admire that you just like went straight straight into it like with a straight face i do love the 
the use of singing in the rain at the end. Mm -hmm. And I think it is particular, like when I mentioned earlier, the sort of subversive aspect of it, of like, he's showing you, um, forgive me. I've only seen singing in the rain once as much as Mm -hmm. I think it is like an incredible movie, but the, the sort of the comedic character in there, who is basically the like Hollywood starlet that then like transition farce, right. Cannot transition because she has this like really annoying squeaky voice. And, that essentially being the same fate that happened to the Margot Robbie character. Cause we hear mm-hmm. like, you know, aside from her sort of uh, kind of debaucherous on the town behavior, you know, she has this, it is basically like the Margot Robbie, like I'm from New Jersey, Brooklyn ish um, yep. thing that she used in like Wolf of wall street and for Harley Quinn, but basically like people telling her like your voice sounds trashy. So we can't put you in movies anymore. Yeah, And for Diego Calva, it is this sort of moment of like for the rest of the audience, it's watching this kind of like hilarious performance in this movie, but Chazelle is sort of weaponizing our familiarity with it being like, Oh no, this is kind of sad. Cause like we just all sat through a movie about like people who had their lives destroyed because like, you know, they talked with a Southern accent or they like pronounced a word incorrectly or something. And this thing that like, Diego Calva's character sort of seeing in real time like this tragic thing I lived through is now just a joke to these people and yeah that I mean that is a totally different ending if he just sort of stuck with that then Mm -hmm. like that's a really downbeat ending than necessarily like him with adding the montage and making it a bit more of this upbeat sort of movie history slash Stargate sequence yeah right (laughs) right Um, right this really trippy sort of like acid trip youtube montage uh at the end that is kind of a a bow on the idea of like but this thing you were a part of is maybe like the most important art form of the 20th century or something like that no i mean and i I should say uh so i've seen this film three times now um just by virtue of circumstance honestly um and my first time i saw it when we got to the ending there was a raised eyebrow. It was not entirely taken at face value. It was uh-huh. when thinking back on the Gene Smart sequence that it really kind of clicked together for me of like, okay, I get why you end on that note. I get why you sort of reach um, that point. And, you know, it's a similar sort of, I think it is sort of, like you said, earnest. I've, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think Naaman described it in similar terms. And most people have said it's kind of earnest uh, kind of corny, kind of cheesy, like, oh, movies, aren't they great? I do think <laughs> it does have a similar sort of ambivalence, though, in light of what you just discussed in relation to the scene of like, you know, your life was ruined by this and the life of the woman that you were in love with for a period of time was ruined by this. And it's just this kind of source of pure heartbreak. And yet, you know, you are now within the economy of images that will sort of last forever. And was that worth it to you? Was it worth being part of that? And it sends you out on this kind of delirious high, but it's similar to La La Land for me, where it's like, you know, okay, they have this kind of moment, the Emma Stone and the Ryan Gosling characters, they have this kind of head nod of like, everything's okay. But, you know, we, we, we only get what the movie shows us and we don't kind of get this, you know, we don't know anything about what happened to Gosling. There's this sense of profound loneliness for me that I think pervades all of these films. First Man, this one, you know, that even, wi- even within this kind of cheesy 
tribute to, oh my gosh, all these wonderful images that will, you know, be part of our culture and will last. Uh, I think it's showing us the ideal of like, that's mm-hmm. why, that's why we strive for this. That's why we devote our lives to movies. That's why we, you know, do everything. Um, I also don't know if it really, you know, it doesn't always fully buy in maybe, or I think there is a sort of ambivalence to it. The thing that I keep going back to, I, I tweeted about this the other day and it, it was the kind of foundation for the piece I'm working on. Um, there's this great Orson Welles clip that was circulating online the other day where he talks about his own personal regrets. And this interviewer is asking him like, do you have any regrets? Um, and he's like, I regret everything. And then the guy's like, what do you mean? Like, you've accomplished all this stuff. What do you, and he's like, well, what do you regret? And he talks about, he's like, well, I regret that I fell in love with, with movies. He's like, I can't change this condition that I'm in love with movies, but I think I'd be better off without it, without something that took so much time and energy from me and took over my life. Basically he has this great line. He's like, you can fall in love with a girl and have her ruin uh, your life. I fell in love with movies and ruined my life. And I think all of the films this year that we've been talking about within this thing have this sort of idea of like, I can't control this love for this thing that I have this sort of utopic idealization of, of like, I'm going to be a star and I'm going to cut this montage together of everything. And I'll last forever longer than any of you longer than anything else, because I'm a fucking star and that's what it is. At the same time, it's like, you know, we have this this moment where he's in the theater and he's just crying because it's like it ruined the lives of all these people who are now dead and gone. And it kind of ruined your life. It almost killed you. Um, So, like, really, was it worth it? And I think that's always the kind of question that Chazelle leaves lingering at the end of his movies of like, okay, you got what you wanted in some ways the montage at the end throws in, which I think is the ballsiest move of the year of like, you know, throwing in his own characters in the middle of this kind of (laughs) montage of the greatest movies ever. Um, But you, they basically gives the characters what they wanted, but asks, you know, at the same time, was that, was that worth it? And I think for some people, it's a cheesy question or a stupid question. I've seen some people suggest that, Chazelle doesn't understand any of this or like has this sort of weird attitude towards art. Once again, we keep talking about the name and review, but I think it gets it, uh, you know, both the positives, which we talked about and some of what people have said of like, um, also the scout to FOIA review on letterbox, which I hated. Um, and I think gets everything about like, it's just a full misunderstanding of yeah. the text, but had a similar thing that was like, Chazelle doesn't understand movies or art or talent or anything. And so there's clearly people who have a very, strangely you know animosity filled reaction to what he's doing i don't mean to shit talk other critics on here that review just made me mad um (laughs) but uh you know i think it's i i think it's interesting that you know his films have all been kind of defined around this similar sort of attitude towards the opportunity costs of success in any number of fields and i think that montage whatever everyone's reaction to it may be i think is of a piece with uh the three hours that came before. Well, I think before we, we go, I did since it, you know, this is dropping kind of after the Christmas holidays and discussed it kind of in vague terms on a TIFF episode. And I know you've oh, seen yeah. it. I figured at, I at forgot least, we were at doing least, this. at least to spend 10, 15 minutes, yeah. just any, any off the cuff, free of the reins of spoilers things you want to say about about glass onion now that that's right now that anyone can watch it on netflix and and we don't we don't have to feel sad about telling people what actually happens in this movie 
Sure. Yeah. I'll say with Glass Onion, um, I saw that in the delirious mix uh, midst of the final days of me doing PhD apps. Uh, so I was kind of like losing my mind. And then I was like, oh, they're going to have Ryan Johnson on campus. I'll go see that. And then Ryan got sick and couldn't come. Um, so that was a bummer. Um, I do not. So context for me with Ryan Johnson, I've seen Brick and Looper each once. I think they're fine, solid. I've never really had much of a compulsion to return to those films. Uh, I think his Star Wars film is the best Star Wars film ever made. Um, I also think Knives Out is mediocre. Um, And I saw Knives Out in 2019 and I was like, eh, that's fine. Um, I think Ryan Johnson is a uh, wonderful uh, sort of genre writer, director, sort of uh, great at subverting expectations, which is why so many people hate The Last Jedi. It's why I love it. Yeah, Um, same. uh, I also think his Knives Out movies have been addled by a particular brand of liberal Twitter brain nonsense that I kind of can't stand. Um, that that and, was sort uh, of what yeah. what what Daniel Feingold and I kind of said coming out of TIFF, and we were at the the premiere of it with like the whole cast, and Brian was there, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I think we both walked out having had a good time, and it was obviously a very like infectious room to be watching that yeah. in. Um, I I maybe like I I really like the first Knives Out, but I I completely agree with like everything you said about this movie, like my uh or everything you've said thus far about the mm-hmm. movie like i i think ryan johnson's ryan johnson as political satirist of our times is maybe yeah. not that that is less successful i think than ryan johnson the like steward of genre cinema who knows yeah. like all the conventions of whether it's uh a star wars movie a murder mystery a noir like backwards yeah. and forwards and knows understands that his audience probably knows that and knows how to play with those things and i think this movie is a lot more fun when it is being when it is messing with what we would think of as a murder mystery kind of whodunit structure yeah which was the sort of appeal of knives out as well of like this kind of and i thought about this at the time and then it was like reinforced for me when we did knives out in a hitchcock class i was in and i was like Mm -hmm. okay yes where it kind of evolves the murder mystery into this more sort of um uh you know kind of hitchcockian thing where we think Ana de Armas did it and we kind of right. have to like go through the Norman Bates psycho routine where we're kind of trying to like help her you know we're along with her as she kind of tries to cover things up um I'll say on Glass Onion I think it's uh marginally better than Knives Out I think I like I was a little bit more positive on this um in part because I really like the bits of this and I, it's, it's a long film, but it feels pretty fleet to me. I did not have the same complaints that a lot of people did about the first hour where I know people were like, this is boring. I kind of like the long setup and then kind I, of recontextualizing everything. I like the farce, the, you know, I like the farcical sort of not not when it's I could have done to, without all the pandemic stuff. Right. Yeah. Not when it's trying to sort of replicate, you know, Twitter speak and be about yes. like Elon Musk influencers and about yeah. like us being cooped up during the pandemic like that that stuff i did not particularly care for but you know celebrities being goofy and just sort of like sniping at each other like that's that's fun and and i i enjoyed 
I, I guess yeah. I'm with you. I enjoyed the first hour when it's just sort of that. And then, yeah, obviously, I, like, and I liked the, I liked the twist because I was like, for the yes. first, I was like, okay, I like where it goes. You know, I, do I think the ending is really dumb? Yes. Um, when it turns into the, my, my thing with Ryan Johnson, I think at this point, um, is that I think, you know, the difference between him and a, and a filmmaker like, uh, Jordan Peele, I think would be mm. the sort of, you know, the other person who's really trying to do, uh, or at least at one point, I think Peele's kind of moving away from this to a kind of more philosophical, metaphysical sort of concern. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Is just, I've seen it a couple of times now. It's so different from, uh, but you know, I, I rewatched it, it was, the other day and it like, I, I mean, it was already pr- pretty high on my year end list, but I think it, slid even higher of just sort of like, oh man, he's, he's, he's getting better. I'm like, I yeah. cannot wait for what he does next. I, and I, I, I love us too, which I know a lot of people don't, but I think, you know, and I think the difference actually lies in us for me because I think Peel is more willing to stress the audience's uh, sort of complicity in what's going on which is a much more sort of hitchcockian sort of idea you know johnson kind of toys with that with the Anna de armas stuff but her character is so sort of um virtuous that it, it's really never that interesting whereas mm. peel it's always sort of putting pressure on you know okay here's all this shit that white liberals do on the regular and we're going to kind of you know the sort of obliviousness i always love the fact that bradley whitford thought the obama line wasn't a joke i mean it's sort of the movie sort of toying with that and with um you know us and the idea of sort of class and the sort of way that we're complicit in structures of that and nope in the idea of spectacle and images whereas with johnson i always feel like it's just sort of telling a certain upper middle class white liberal audience exactly what they kind of want to hear mm. it's it's less a sort of revision of twitter talking points and just a parodying of like and like look i hate elon musk too i don't know what like like i hate right. the guy he's ruined my favorite website um and he's done uh, all, beyond all manner of other things uh so like you know the stuff with ed norton works in this for me to a certain extent but i also just think he's defined by a sort of more like johnson plays with this kind of black and white morality that is funny at times, but it's also just kind of contingent on knowing the language, knowing the sort of interactions of that kind of hyper online space, and then just sort of re- reaffirming the audiences like, okay, like these are the bad people. And if you're watching this and if you get this, you're the good people and give you a nice pat on the back for sort of getting right. what he's doing. And I just think it's he kind of perpetuates this sort of and it's like if you read interviews with him, like I read the interview he did with Walter Chaw, which I thought was interesting of like basically retrofitting the sort of whodunit into this vehicle for sort of uh, what was the word he used? Like restorative justice or, or like a different kind of morality of just like of like, oh, I can sort of like I can't make the world better. But like and that's why I don't really love the sort of blow up the house everybody hits the ice sculptures yeah. Of like yeah we hate the rich like yeah i hate the rich too i don't know what to tell you but. yeah it's fun to watch janelle monet do that and i think you know that's yes. probably the biggest spoiler of the movie is sort of like m- midway through her which character. i think works yeah yeah and and i think it it really becomes you know the sort of twist in the movie where we sort of rewind time and then we figure out that no she's not this character the who she says she is she's the twin sister and but but she gets to sort of like the she becomes the new lead of the movie from daniel craig and in the in the way that sort of like i think a lot of people kind of walked out of the first one 
pointing at Ana de Armas and was just like, that, he, that person's yeah. a movie star. You know, I think Janelle Monet gets when when people were asking me, even in sort of like vague ways to like not say spoilers, like who's the person that's gonna be the standout like Ana de Armas mm-hmm. was, I was like, I can't really tell you why, but it's it's Janelle Monet. And yeah. I think makes makes a really compelling case to like i mean i've i've liked her and stuff like I, yeah, moonlight, moonlight and, she's, and, yeah you know i mean it's not like it's it's news that she's like a very talented actress but i think this makes a very compelling case to her as sort of like a marquee idol movie yeah. star who can play drama who can play comedy can really like hold her own against these very like big name actors and and is is just like a delight to watch in the second half of that movie but yeah. you know i agree with you that like when it's like psst, did you know that uh you know this character is supposed to be joe rogan and this character is supposed to be yeah. a, a a sort of like look i love mid, how much con- i love how much contempt he, yeah i love right, how much contempt right. he has for all of them it's just like you're saying like oh look, look do you get it yeah this I get person's it. a dumb canceled celebrity this person is like a moderate democrat all all of the you know all of that stuff i it it being sort of and i think you and i are people that are like in the throes of twitter every single day so it becomes a little bit of the like don't look up syndrome of yes of last year where it's just sort of like where it feels like someone walking into a party and telling you a joke and you'd be like dude i heard that like eight times already tonight yeah it's no i mean it's just and it's it's sort of frozen in time of like especially when it does like 20 minutes of pandemic jokes to start and it's like okay like i get it we were all inside in 2020 no i mean you know i think i keep sort of pivoting from points really quickly but i do agree on the gentleman a front especially because you know amusingly enough i think the best comparison i can think of in some ways is uh naomi watts and mulholland drive like if you see that movie with no sort of Uh because i'll be honest like the first hour and i love janelle monet and moonlight and i think she's really great I, i thought she was terrible in the first hour of this I I was just sort of like ambivalent of like okay it's kind of a nothing she's just going to kind of like scowl throughout the movie. Yes, I was just like well it's just, it's just oh he okay he gave her the role where she has to give lectures to uh you know uh the Elon Musk stand in and stuff like that. I'm like okay this is kind of boring. Uh but when it does that flip she's amazing and I'm yeah. actually I'm sure my family will uh rewatch it over the break because that's what the knives out movies are for is for Same. you to watch with your family when you go home for christmas it's the plan um, at the nussman household yeah <laughs> um and i think she's really phenomenal in the second half of this um and uh yeah it was a really sort of great switch for me um i, I do think you know if he does he, he's gonna keep making these because they make a lot of money um and they're really popular i do think he needs to find a different dynamic for the set mm. for the third movie rather than uh because i think it, it hasn't come up yet because i think everybody has this sort of idea of like oh ryan johnson he's got the right sort of left liberal politics and he's you know whatever i think it he's times, very nice he, and people you know he people it's, love it's a little him. bit of people, the like guillermo del toro thing of just like there's something just like insanely likable about him the, the film twitter people work. know him and yeah. they're friends and there's this kind of thing I do think this veers now we've made two movies now of a sort of similar central dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it gets to that point. And I think it's always kind of, you know, do I think it's starting to border on a kind of weird white savior complex? Yes. Where it's just like, I'm going to have this white male detective from the South and he's going to help, uh, you know, be the one who sort of helps restore the order 
for everyone who's been oppressed. And I'm like, I get it. Like, I, I think like, I don't think Ryan's aims are bad. Mm-hmm. I just think it's a kind of liberal sort of politics where it's like, I, I don't know. I'm just a little suspect of it at a certain point. Um, you know, but that's me being a little cynical. Um, and also just sort of, uh, the movie came out at the right time though. Cause like it was yeah. right when the Elon Musk stuff was going crazy. And like I said, I do appreciate his contempt for all of these people. I think that's sort of, uh, you know, the Elon Musk's and the sort of, uh, all of the different characters of the world. Um, yeah, I'm, I like- I'm looking forward to seeing it again, like with my family, hopefully over the Christmas holidays. Uh-huh. Cause I, I, I will also an added bit of context to when I saw it was even though it was a very fun environment to see it it was i'm trying to remember the name of the theater but the seat i was in was very very uncomfortable and i also aggressively really had to go to the bathroom and could not move because of like where i was in position of the theater oh so so that must have been um yeah i i I feel like it was maybe the princess of wales princess of wales which that theater fucking sucks i mean great beautiful 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 theater but definitely like venue Oh my god! It was it was a real it's it's coming back to me now a real like contradict like it's 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 wrapping us this... back to the the dual the dual sides of cinema and Babylon. It was both the sort of like this is an incredibly <laughs> fun experience, but also like I'm experiencing this in the most uncomfortable way possible. Oh my gosh! I, yeah, I remember like there was a point. So I went to TIFF for context for readers. Like I went to TIFF like six years ago, um, and uh, yeah, there was definitely a point in the festival where. I realized that I was just getting trapped in these like seats. And like, if I needed to like get out and like go somewhere, I was just stuck. Um, And uh, yeah, so I started sitting like, especially like, like in the Elgin or in the winter garden, like I would sit up on the balcony in like an aisle seat and I'm like, I'm still center. This is great. Uh, Princess of Wales is one of the most uncomfortable. Like they do a lot of the big premieres there in Roy Thompson hall, which I like a little better. Yeah. Um, It just the most, uh, yeah. So no, I think you'll enjoy it more on Netflix. I'm excited as well. Like I said, I saw it when I was really exhausted. Um, you know, it was an improvement for me, even if I think, you know, it kind of has, you know, easy politics and a sort of simplistic worldview at times, though it's one I agree with. Once again, like, yeah. it's like everything in it is like indisputable. Like it just fits in line with, you know, my sort of own ideology. But it's just like when parroted back through Ryan Johnson's kind of earnest smarminess which is a contradiction but like one that i feel is accurate to what that film is at times mm-hmm. you know it kind of gets a little um annoying daniel craig's fun um i liked the sort of pared down cast i like the way it sort of sets up i like doing the sort of recontextualization thing i don't think i'll ever love one of these movies if i ever did i would kind of be shocked um but you know because it kind of always ends in the same place with him lecturing a a objectively bad person on why they're bad and it's just like all right well yeah okay um you know but uh good movie fun to watch with the family uh, yeah. unless you have a really i don't know conservative family that like loves elon musk or something but or you have a really debaucherous lurid family in which case take them to go see babylon take them to see babylon uh, they'll love well, all the elephant shit yeah well josh thank you for for stopping by this week and, Thank uh, you for having me. Glad to be on to talk about, uh, obviously, Damien Chazelle and then a little bit on uh, one of the other many films. I have so much yeah. to... I'm waiting for our nominations to come out because I have so much to watch. Oh, gosh. I need to yeah. stop watching I, I have a couple of things I still need to catch up on. But uh, next week on the show, uh, I believe bringing back Daniel Feingold and him and I are going to discuss our 
uh, top 10 favorite movies of the year. Uh, so stay tuned for that for some good recommendations. <laughs>